0: It was a blast felt round the world. A volcano erupted in Tonga last month. The Pacific nation of Tonga was inundated with large tsunami waves as residents rushed to higher ground. Video posted to social media showed the waves swirling around homes and buildings in coastal areas. The waves that it caused spread across the Pacific and eventually hit the West Coast. I'm Gustavo Ariano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. It's Tuesday, February 8th, 2022. Soon after the eruption, tsunami warnings were issued from Asia to North and South America to Australia. There was none of the devastation like the world saw in Fukushima in 2011 or across the Indian Ocean in 2004. But what happened in Tonga got us thinking. How are the effects of tsunamis so devastating, yet so little is known about them? That's why today we're calling together, as usual, our Masters of Disasters. Musica maestro. Up first we have Ron Lin who covers earthquakes and Ron, earthquakes even cause river tsunamis, right? Lake tsunamis, you you name it. Oh, that's so scary. Next is Alex Wigglesworth, who covers fire. And yes, there's a fire component to tsunamis as well. Welcome, Alex. Hello. And joining us this month is David Pearson, who covers Southeast Asia for the Los Angeles Times. He's not a master of disaster per se, but he does cover disasters masterfully. So David, glad you could join us.
1: Hey, thank you for having me.
0: Welcome all, and Ron, let's start with you because you're the earthquake master. And Tonga is thousands of miles away from California, yet beaches were shut down across the state the morning of the Tonga volcanic explosion. Why?
2: Yeah, it was a pretty unusual tsunami. I mean, the experts were really caught off guard by the tsunami's size and power. I mean, this is a different kind of tsunami because it was caused by probably an underwater landslide after a volcano erupted. You've probably seen the images of it. It created this sonic Boom. <laughs> which caused a lot of energy to be pushed across the ocean. And yes, it, it comes out all the way over here.
3: We're seeing some impacts, flooding in coastal areas, harbors. It's not quite the depiction that we see in the Hollywood movies, but still the threat and the danger.
2: I mean, it did cause millions of dollars in damage. I think $6 million in damage to Santa Cruz alone. And, you know, it's important to keep in mind, A lot of people think of tsunamis as like the big, giant, devastating tsunami that swept through Japan. But even tsunamis that are just a few feet high can cause millions of dollars of damage and it can wreck economies. The one that happened up in Crescent City just a few years ago ruined their harbor for years.
0: So thankfully, those tsunamis we saw were... Relatively smaller in scale, but when they hit hard, they go beyond the realm of disasters. They're straight up catastrophic, apocalyptic, even like the 2011 one in Japan. David, you covered it. What do you remember about it?
1: Yeah, I was based in our Beijing bureau at the time. And I remember we got reports of a massive earthquake in Japan, 9.0. So that puts it, you know, in the top five of all time in recorded history. And pretty quickly, I wouldn't say quickly enough, but there were uh, tsunami warnings coming out.
3: People who have already evacuated, please remain evacuated. And tsunamis occur repeatedly. So please continue to remain in your evacuation venues.
1: For an hour. There were TV helicopters filming images of these massive waves just barreling towards the Japanese coast. And these waves crashed onto the shores of Japan, just completely flattened communities.
2: Everything has turned upside
3: down.
1: After the tsunami, our house was gone. We lost everything. And the reason it's called the triple disaster is because you had an earthquake, then a tsunami, and then it hit this nuclear plant, the Fukushima nuclear plant, off the coast of northeastern Japan, triggering a nuclear meltdown. The plutonium problem has raised concerns, especially about the local environmental pollution. And so they had to evacuate 150,000 people from the area.
3: Police are going in with hazmat suits and they're pulling out more bodies, you know, and the death toll keeps mounting.
1: It released all kinds of contamination into into the region. By the end, 18,000 people were dead from the disaster. And then after that there was an economic sort of crisis.
0: They're saying that cost uh, could reach as much as $310 billion, and that would be more than twice as much as the losses from Hurricane
1: Katrina. Because Japan is, you know, an advanced economy, and this is for a certain generation, this is the first time people have heard supply chain before. We hear supply chain all the time now. But this was a big supply chain event because, you know, suddenly silicon wafers couldn't be exported. Suddenly Toyota couldn't export their cars. And so the impact of this was just astronomical. It was reality-defying for people watching.
0: It was a quadruple disaster, economic, the earthquake, the tsunami, the nuclear meltdown. And then on top of that, Alex, there were fires sparked by that tsunami.
3: Yeah, there were hundreds of fires. The tsunami damaged oil tanks at ports and industrial complexes and fuel tanks attached to vehicles and the leaked oil and gas caught fire as the waves sent different metals crashing into each other, generating sparks and pushed the fires into wooden homes and other debris. And a lot of people in the affected areas use propane to heat their homes. So there were reports of damaged propane cylinders that were spitting flames as they floated on the waves, uh, setting fire to whatever they touched. And scientists believe there might be another weirder explanation for some of these fires, as well as fires that started during another powerful tsunami that devastated the island of Okushiri in 1993. Video footage from that 1993 tsunami showed fishing boats bursting into flames seemingly spontaneously at basically the same time the tsunami hit the harbor. Witnesses described the ocean as bubbling and shining white right before this happened. Researchers later found that methane gases that had been buried in the seafloor were stirred up by the ground sliding. The tsunami then helped squeeze the methane bubbles up into the seawater and drove them into a seawall, generating static electricity that caused the bubbles to catch fire. And they concluded that's what caused the ocean to appear frothy and illuminate white. The burning bubbles then accumulated on the boat decks. The boats caught fire. The tsunami swept them ashore and they ignited the gasoline of a car that was rolling in the waves and the fire eventually spread to the center of town.
0: We'll be right back. So before the break we were talking about that 2011 earthquake and tsunami and nuclear meltdown and fire and economic disaster in Japan but there was an even deadlier tsunami in 2004 David what happened there
1: That one started with a offshore earthquake that was even bigger than the one in Japan it was uh, registered at 9.1 Get inside
3: come on guys <laughs>
1: was off the northwestern tip of Indonesia, a place called Bande Aceh, which uh, many people hadn't heard of before, unless you were covering an insurgency, uh, which was running there for for many years. This triggered a tsunami that ripples across the Indian Ocean and hits a bunch of countries like Sri Lanka, India, and it flattens these little islands in the Indian Ocean.
3: This is indeed a Uh, an international tragedy and we're gonna do everything we can to assist uh, the nations that have been affected in dealing with this tragedy.
1: Japan, that's a rich country. That killed nearly 20,000 people. These were a lot of poor countries that were being devastated. A quarter of a million people died, most of them in Indonesia. And it wreaks havoc on these countries, on tourism in places like Phuket and Thailand. There's a massive economic impact, not just with the tourism industry, but also with fishing. To this day, people live with this horrible trauma from this natural disaster.
0: And then on top of that, Ron, you started seeing a phenomenon called tsunami tourism.
2: Yeah, tsunami tourism is a thing. And in fact, in a weird way, it can actually be an economic opportunity. So... Crescent City is like the capital of tsunamis in California. It's this town up in the northwestern part of California. It's the last big city right before you head into Oregon. And it's it's actually called Comeback Town USA after a tsunami killed 11 people after the, the great 1964 earthquake that hit Alaska. was hit hard again more recently and actually there's a an effort to try to promote crescent city as a place where people can come and learn about tsunami science because it's actually a thing that people need to be aware about i mean it would be a good thing for californians when we're at the beach or if we're at a nice restaurant just on the coast to think about you know if an earthquake really happens my brain needs to shift really quickly to decide hey i got to get up to the bluff or just further
0: inland if a tsunami hits And there was another tsunami that hit Indonesia in 2018, and that one was deadly and devastating as well. But, Ron, it also offered a disturbing lesson for people who live in tsunami zones.
2: Yeah, I mean, in a way, if you have a big earthquake that happens many hours away, like if a big earthquake happens in Chile or Alaska, us in California, we're going to have many hours of warning what this Indonesia tsunami in 2018, what made it so scary is that the quake struck really close to shore. And so it wasn't detected by deep sea sensors that can give people hours of warning before evacuations can occur. And so when this magnitude 7.5 earthquake hit just north of a narrow bay, it sent waves as tall as 20 feet straight into a town. And that killed 1,200 people. And the thing for Southern California is something like this could happen. I mean, there's this scenario of an underwater landslide caused by an earthquake in Santa Barbara and that could cause, you know, a sloshing of tsunami waves into other parts of Santa Monica Bay. So it's super important that people have this mindset of, you know, you might be enjoying the beach, but if you feel an earthquake, it's time to get up and get moving. So over the summer on a trip from Seattle to San Francisco, we took the 101 coming down and we hit up a small town called Long Beach, Washington. Here I am in Long Beach, Washington, greeting visitors to the beach. There's a sign that says, Warning, ocean currents are dangerous. No swimming. It's this small town that's beautiful. But it's also known to me <laughs> as a city where it's at real risk of being flooded in a tsunami, especially one that is resulting from a magnitude 9 earthquake just off the Washington and Oregon coasts. And when you actually look at the beach itself, it's, it's pretty menacing. You can kind of see these large waves coming on shore. It's a very different beach experience than in uh, California. And there are a number of communities right along the coast where there's not really enough time to evacuate from the lowland areas if a big magnitude 9 earthquake hits off the coast of Northern California, Oregon, and Washington. They actually had a high school athlete run from the elementary school to the evacuation point. And he just barely made it. And there's no way that these little kids could make it. So the long-term solution in a lot of these areas is to build vertical evacuation centers. And it's just so important that people kind of understand that tsunamis are a thing. They might not happen in our lifetime, but when it does, you definitely want to know what to do.
0: Alex, a lot of your coverage deals with how climate change is making fire season a year-round thing. Does climate change also impact tsunamis?
3: Sure, one big one is sea level rise. We know this is already happening with a warming climate and it's accelerating. Research has found that if this continues in the future, smaller earthquakes will likely be capable of generating larger tsunamis that travel further inland and cause more flooding. There's also been evidence that climate change is increasing the risk of landslides by either melting frozen soil and making it more susceptible to erosion, causing more intense rainfall events, and, of course, contributing to larger, more severe wildfires that are leaving behind enormous high-intensity burn areas with no vegetation to hold the soil in place. And, like Ron mentioned earlier, when a landslide falls into a body of water, that can cause a tsunami.
0: (laughs) These are very scary. So for all of you, what can we do to better prepare for a tsunami?
1: Well, the early warning systems clearly have to be improved. But what we learned in Southeast Asia as well is that infrastructure there is just very, very poor. And these are countries that, you know, governments don't invest enough money in exit routes, evacuation routes. And they have to learn also how to have better preparation for relief afterwards. There was a lot of problems before and in some of these disasters getting just food and water and medicine to a lot of these people. You know, businesses have also learned from this as well, how to adapt to tsunamis. You know, Toyota is famous for pioneering what's called the just-in-time supply chain, where they only stockpile as much inventory as necessary to cut costs on warehousing. And what they learned from the 2011 earthquake and tsunami is that this is not feasible during a massive natural disaster. And they ended up uh, stockpiling more inventory. And as a result, they were more prepared for the current supply chain crisis that we are in today and um, had a very healthy earnings report recently.
3: For the fire piece of it, you'd want to do the things that you do for any other fires, have an evacuation plan, put together an emergency supply kit, have a portable radio or scanner so you can get updates. Knowing how to shut off gas and electricity to your home is a good one. I'd also like to add one thing. I'm gonna start saying every time that you ask us this, stop trashing our planet. It's pretty much making every natural disaster worse. So if you wanna get ahead of these things, that would help. There's
2: actually easy things to do to prepare. So one, if you have a smartphone, download the earthquake early warning system to your phone. You hopefully would get an advance notice about the earthquake, that'll give you a head start. If you're in a beach, There's no time to really get in the car and, like, get out. If you're able to, you know, start walking up. And you don't have to go that far, right? Like, if you're at Santa Monica Beach, those bluffs just above the beach will be fine. You don't have to go to, like, you know, Mount Baldy or anything. Just 100 feet up is okay. And I think it would be good for everybody to, to go to the state's website, the California Geological Survey's website, Find out where the places are that are in evacuation zones and just kind of take it seriously. It really should be second nature for Californians to like get up to higher land when the shaking happens. And it's also really important that people do not sightsee. And it happens even just during this last tsunami, there were some surfers that were out surfing. They had to be rescued, and that puts firefighters at risk. And in the tsunami that hit California about 10 years ago, I think the one person that ended up dying in California was someone who went out to the beach because they wanted to see the waves come in. And this is not something you really want to play with. I mean, even a one-foot or a two-foot tall tsunami, it can knock a grown person down. And so it's just not something you want to Play with. The other thing to think about, too, is that there are multiple waves of this, so it might be kind of cool if you're there, because you would see the water kind of go out, and you'll see a lot of areas of the beach that are exposed by sand, but there will be a second wave, and it might be hours and hours away. That's where a lot of the fatalities happened. In Eureka, during the 1964 tsunami, there are actually people that went back into a bar close to the beach, to have some drinks after the first wave came in and then the second wave came in and and some of them were washed out to sea. So I know it's appealing to some people who might think it's like, it's really cool to see, but it's really something to be super serious about and to have a healthy respect for.
0: We'll be right back. We're back. And now comes our traditional ending to Masters of Disasters, where we try to bring all of you hope by asking our masters what's bringing them joy in these trying times. So, Ron, this has been your episode, so might as well start with you. In these pandemic times,
2: we were trying to figure out something to do with some family members that were visiting from out of town. And something that brought us a lot of joy was doing an out-of-season Easter egg hunt for the kitties and the adults. It was a blast, and it kind of goes to show that even uh, 20-somethings may not be as imaginative about where you hide eggs as you might think. How did Jewel feel about this?
0: Oh, she was a little jealous about it, but we'll do a special (laughs) one for her. Jewel the rabbit, the official mascot of Masters of Disasters. Alex, what's bringing you joy right now?
3: Yeah, so up in uh, the Central Valley, it's almost blossom season. That's when all the fruit and the nut trees bloom before they start producing in the spring. And in Fresno County, you can take a driving tour through the orchards or past them called the Blossom Trail, And it's really beautiful. And as you know, I'm a huge tourist, so I love this stuff.
0: Oh, no, yeah. I always love the joy that you bring. It always involves traveling. David, finally, what's bringing you joy right now?
1: Yeah, well, given the last two years, I'd say my big joy is that everyone in my family is healthy. But my little joy is a Singaporean breakfast called Kaya Butter Toast, which brings me joy and cholesterol. It's basically... uh, Two pieces of bread toasted over charcoal and then smothered in a coconut jam and a really unhealthy amount of butter Mm. that you dip into these soft boiled eggs that are sort of like some level before cooked. It's amazing.
0: In a world of disasters, toast will always bring us joy. I love that. Ron Lynn, Alex Wigglesworth, David Pearson, our masters of disasters and friend of masters of disasters. Thank you so much for being on this show.
1: Thank you, Gustavo. Thanks for having us.
3: Thank you.
0: And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, we start our Super Bowl coverage with the bad, the NFL's perpetual lack of blackhead coaches. Shannon Lynn was the heifer of this episode, and it's her mom's birthday today. Happy birthday, Sunshine Sandra. Shannon's a senior producer, along with Denise Guerra and Kasha Brasadio. Assisting them are Ashley Brown and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Epin. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. I'm Gustavo Arellano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and desmadre. Gracias.